0: Hey, welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. My name is Kimberly Trung, and to my virtual right, I have Doug Ameth.
1: Hey, howdy, y'all. Hey. (laughs) Brought
0: back the howdy. And to my virtual left, I have Paul Ducklin. Aloha. Aloha. If you see what I
2: did there. Very nice.
0: Two callbacks, great. Uh, listeners who are just tuning in for the first time are like, I have no idea what you guys are referring to. You just will have to go back and listen to previous episodes.
1: All 36 of them. <laughs>
0: 36. Them Uh, and there's more. That would be a little bit
2: unfair. Let us say it was the the previous two where that (laughs) particular story would be revealed. Just (laughs) Just listen to
1: thirty six. You
2: got to
0: listen to
1: all of it. Start at
0: episode one.
2: Yeah, (laughs) and then start at episode one because you really, really, really want to. Mm -hmm.
0: Before we get into the headlines, I just want to quickly tease the oh no of the week, and all I'm going to say is, pay attention to what you hear. On those support calls. Doug, what's happening in the news?
1: Oh, we're going to take a reader question about mm-hmm. quantum computing, which mm-hmm. just should take a couple of minutes to answer, no big deal.
0: Great. And <laughs> right.
1: we're going to talk about how the FBI recovered Bitcoin from the colonial ransomware payment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we're going to talk about alpacas. <laughs> yes. They
2: are so cool. Well, I... I never had one as a pet so you know they could be cantankerous for all i know but
0: i mean it, i'm sure the, the
2: logo with the alpaca in in the story wearing a little alpaca scarf all of its own it's worth talking about it just for that
0: yeah you can't be but mad, mad at that there's an interesting
2: technological side too no. yeah you can't, <laughs> you can't be mad at- I think that would be a pretty poor logo if people got angry at it. (laughs) We definitely need a new marketing department. (laughs) Yeah, the
0: marketing really did think about that logo. They're like, how do we have a friendly face? Anyway, go on.
1: So quantum computing, Bitcoin, alpacas. But first, fun fact. The place with the longest name in the world is located in New Zealand. It's 85 characters. Taumata Wakatangi Hangakagu o Tamatea Turi Piki Mauga Oro Nuku Pokai Wenua Tahu Translates into English as the place where Tamatea, the man with the big knees who slid, climbed, and swallowed mountains known as Land Eater, played his flute for his loved ones. <laughs> the locals simply call it Taumata Hill. And I may have mispronounced it. I'm not sure if I got it. <laughs> no, you were totally on it. I asked myself, should I practice this first or should I see if there's a recording of it? And I said, I'm just going to wing it. I'm going to go right through it. And I think I got it about 78 to 85% accurate. But we can just call it <laughs> Taumata Hill. <laughs> so speaking of Taumata Hill, let's talk about quantum computing. Mm-hmm. Jonathan asks, does quantum computing mean the end of encryption? Paul, that's a pretty pointed question, and we could probably go on for several minutes. So does quantum computing mean the end of encryption? Uh
2: Yes, it's a question that crops up in the media regularly with good reason. To explain it all in detail would, as you say, take at least a few minutes, if not a few podcasts. And some of the technical details about things like how things like qubits or quantum binary digits work. So let's skip all that. The idea is that imagine that you could build a computer like the ones we have now, but a bit different with the result that it could solve certain kinds of mathematical calculations very, very much more quickly. In fact, exponentially more quickly than we can do with current computing gear. One outcome of that could be that some encryption algorithms that are supposed to take 2 to the power 12 years to crack might suddenly take just 12 years. Data that you might expect to keep say for a year or two that might be enough might suddenly become crackable in seconds and that's the fear of this thing called quantum computing the theory is that you could do calculations that exist in lots of different states at the same time thanks to the magic of quantum mechanics all the answers you might want are encoded and you just need a a clever trick to extract if you like the right one so you can do things In parallel, that would take you a load of sequential operations to do currently. And in particular, there is one algorithm called Shaw's algorithm that supposedly or could make a particular sort of cryptographic cracking solvable in the logarithm of the time that it takes now. And in particular, the algorithms that might fall apart are the current ones that we rely upon for what's called public key cryptography. In other words, TLS, the thing that puts the padlock in your address bar. And so there's this concern that, well, if someone builds a big enough, powerful enough, reliable enough quantum computer, and there are people who say that that might actually not be possible, that the laws of physics might prevent us building a quantum computer on the right scale. Uh, But if they could, it could be a problem that even data that has already been encrypted that nobody's been able to decrypt, might be able to go back and unravel all that stuff. Would that be the end of encryption? Well, it needn't be if you take the right sort of precautions now by designing a variation on today's encryption algorithms that doesn't suffer from this exponentially faster crackability. And that is exactly what cryptographic experts are doing as we speak. So
1: we can use quantum computing to prevent quantum computing from ending (laughs) encryption
2: well in fact there's a whole other part of what you might call quantum computing known as quantum key distribution where it is surmised that if it's possible to implement this correctly and overcome the limitations of distance that currently exist where we can do things like tls where the whole idea of tls is before we start communicating even though we've never met up, even though we've never had a secret chance to share an encryption key, we can do it publicly in plain sight and nobody can figure out what key we agreed upon. Quantum key distribution is a way in which if anybody tries to get in the way of you doing that key agreement right up front, you would know. So there's a sort of irony that to some people quantum mechanics in computing could be either the very end of encryption as we know it or the beginning of encryption which is that much more secure and i guess like a lot of technologies kind of depends on how you use it
0: this is fascinating as someone who knows nothing about quantum anything um actually i lie i do know one thing quantum leap
1: i was gonna say you (laughs) definitely know about quantum
2: leap and i'm sure you know about the cat right the oh, yes as cat. yes i i and, saw a guy okay, in town things. in oxford today with the famous t-shirt wanted dead and alive <laughs> <as cat. laughs>
0: that is great okay oh. we're gonna have to we're gonna have to we're gonna have to find that shirt um i may need it uh, i find that all very fascinating thank you duck Jonathan, I hope this answered your question.
2: Don't worry so much, Jonathan. It didn't explain why, unfortunately, but yeah, there is a concern. And and this is actually don't need quantum computing to make you think this way. Sometimes we become reliant on technologies or algorithms or ways of solving things like eight character passwords that we store in plain text, for example. And then someone comes along and says, you know what? That's a terribly bad idea because X and Y and Z. And then we go, I know, here's a better way to do it. Let's use that way instead. And then 12 years later, we're still trying to convince people, let's do it the new way. The old way doesn't work anymore. And that's what we need when it comes to cryptography. We need what you might call engineering nimbleness built in. It's kind of like we know how to solve the problems that uh, quantum cryptographic cracking might cause. We're pretty sure we know. The problem is actually getting People to build them into their software without having to wait another 13 years. Mm-hmm. So you're all on notice, all yeah. you software developers out get there. Get started now, guys. <laughs> Speed sometimes really is of the essence. And building software so it can easily be adapted to take on new technologies and most importantly, to get rid of ones that don't work well anymore. That's really what we need.
1: Stick mm-hmm. that in your backlog and groom it. Am I right? <laughs>
2: Uh my mind's boggling a little bit, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I'm not sure I. There, well, there may have been a transatlantic semantic lost in, yeah, lost disconnect. In trans-
0: there. A- when a- I was a I product manager,
1: talk. I spent a lot of time grooming my backlog. So mm. that's that's the excuse I would use for everything. I can't make this meeting. I got to groom my backlog. Oh, honey, I can't make the uh, lunch with your uh, your sisters. I got to groom my backlog. So
0: sounds important. Yeah. yeah it does sound I suppose legit. it's better
2: than combing your mullet. Yep, grooming it. But not by much.
0: <laughs> All right. Shall we move to the news?
2: Please. Yes.
0: All right. Our first headline today for you guys How could the FBI recover BTC from Colonial's ransomware payment? Okay, so if you've been possibly living under a rock or just not checking the news, there has been some pretty big news over the past few weeks. Uh, The cybersecurity buzz of this past week has been very intriguing and highly unusual. It's about the aftermath of, as I said, the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. So, Colonial runs the largest American supply pipeline for refined petroleum products, capable of shifting about 500 million liters a day of various fuels, including gasoline or petrol, as my uh, British uh, companions would say, com... British... Compadres, I think is <laughs> Not just
2: British people. Quite a lot of people call it Brits. that. This is true, uh, this it's, is true. It's all to do with marketing, I believe
0: you're totally right yes mm-hmm. um so it's like whether you call
2: it paraffin or kerosene True. depends on which brand was in your country first right um, so yeah that- th- lots fuel of fuel that's ready to use basically yeah. <laughs> rather than crude oil
0: they do a lot of it whatever you want to call it they do a lot of it and so it's usually being moved between texas and northeastern united states so um that was up until it was shut down something that happened in the aftermath of a ransomware attack by a cybercrime gang known as dark even though law enforcement groups around the world urge ransomware victims to not pay up, as we know too well, and you've heard us talk about on this very podcast, today's ransomware payments directly fund tomorrow's ransomware tax. So anyway, Colonial apparently decided to hand over what was then $4.4 million, U.S. dollars, in Bitcoins anyway.
1: In between there,
0: mm.
1: um, people started hoarding gasoline. Yes. And to do so, they would... Uh, pump gasoline into plastic garbage bags no. and a couple couple fun facts and keep them in their trunks. Gasoline goes bad and oh. it eats through plastic. So huh? there's yeah. a lot of people out there with a bunch of gas in their trunk that's gone bad.
2: Oh my. So. They put what we call petrol, that, that, that v- super volatile, yeah. incredibly energetic liquid fuel in a plastic bag and tied a knot in it and sloshed it around in the trunk it's of their crazy. car. It's crazy.
1: We Americans are a are an intelligent and uh, non-panicky bunch. So when this happened, we simply put gas in plastic bags and took them to our homes and buried them in our backyards or that left them in like our That is like
2: trying to store electricity by <laughs> you so? connecting yourself up to the mains um... and hoping you'll charge yourself up for a few days.
0: We're not saying this was a great idea. By any means, please don't put gas in bags, listeners. Okay, so going back to the story, I'm going to assume that Colonial Pipeline hoped that the decryption tool promised by the blackmailers would work. Uh, Unfortunately, it was a dud and uh, certainly didn't help things. So transferring crypto coins is basically like pulling up into a creepy parking lot and handing over a bag of cash to someone you don't, no. Um, So if you change your mind and the seller doesn't give you what they promise you, you have nowhere to report it uh, and you have to rely on hopefully the seller agreeing to give you your money back.
1: At least I still got my bag of gas. (laughs) I still got your bag of gas.
0: Um, So anyway, uh, despite all of this, this latest news is that the FBI apparently managed to get back 63.7 63.7 of the 75 bitcoins handed over by Colonial Pipeline. Crazy. Well done.
2: Impressive. Well that was the reason we wrote this up on nakedsecurity.softoff.com was kept getting emails from people saying how can that happen? Like I know Bit- bitcoin's like mostly anonymous. The transactions you can follow the transactions, but since when did Anyone get their bitcoins back? And Maybe you can even, even if you could figure out who'd spent them and you had a vague idea who it was, all you can do is phone them up and ask them, Would you mind, I, old chap, sending us the money back? So people were, you know, right for thinking, How, why can't they do this all the time? And it's a good question because in theory, it should be somewhere between quite difficult indeed and impossible. To get bitcoins back. So did the FBI crack Bitcoin encryption? How on earth did they do this? And it looks as though through good operational intelligence by the FBI, maybe by some bad operational practices on the part of the crooks, namely leaving the bitcoins lying around in one wallet, the FBI were able, it seems, to recover the private key which is basically like the pin for a cash point, an ATM card, the private key that would allow them to spend the money that Colonian had sent to the crooks. And so as far as I know, the FBI actually got a court order saying you're allowed to spend, and I'm making massive air quotes, those bitcoins that you can see there by using the private key that you have access to. And that's what they did. They kind of, sent them back to themselves unfortunately uh the Bitcoin price had taken a bit of a tumble um, oh, it sure so did. they got about the in 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 between so they got back about 85 percent of the bitcoinage as far as I know but by the time they got it back it only had 50 percent of the value when it yeah. was purchased
1: hold it um, well that's interesting do they do they cash out right away and give colonial US currency or do they give the bitcoins? too colonial, who can then sit I, on I don't
2: them. know, Doug. I think yeah. the answer is it depends. In the past, there has been a case where the FBI confiscated a whole bunch of Bitcoins. And I know in one case I think they auctioned them. So I don't know what they'll do with them, but the point is, the crooks had them, thought they'd got away with them because whoever is going to reverse the transaction, no magic fraud reporting number on the back of a credit card to call, but the cops got in With a court order and took her back. Sadly, it doesn't happen often.
0: We have some tips. First of all, don't put all of your crypto coins in hot wallets. Duck, what does that mean?
2: The terminology is a cold wallet is one that's offline. So you might have it on your own computer or you might have it on a USB stick and you might have it encrypted and you keep that USB stick unplugged and you keep it in the top drawer of your desk, locked away at home so that somebody wanders into your computer can't find it. That's a cold wallet and that's ideal because just like the very backups that you make to protect you from ransomware crooks who want bitcoins in the first place offline and off-site backups really really help now a hot wallet is kind of the opposite it's where you decide okay i'm going to take some of my crypto coins and i'm going to put them in some kind of online cloud service some sort of cryptocurrency exchange so that i can just jump online press a button and trade with them quickly So what I'll do is I'll actually entrust the private key to that exchange as well, relying on that company not getting hacked, not going rogue themselves, not getting malware on their server that sniffs out private keys when they're in use and so forth. So a hot wallet is basically where it's loosely like you've lent your cryptocurrency to somebody else and you're hoping that they'll provide a web front end that makes it easy for you to spend and trade online. So my recommendation is never put more of your crypto coins into a hot wallet than you can afford to lose.
0: Next tip, don't keep all of your data online all the time.
2: That's sort of the flip side of, of the previous tip. <laughs> offline means you take that private key for your crypto wallet and you copy it off your computer onto another device like a USB stick. You have no trace of the private key on your regular computer and you take that stick and you either carry it with you or you lock it away in a safe or you put it somewhere else. So that the crooks don't just breaking into your computer is not enough. So it's a it's what you might call a super cold wallet, where not only have you not handed it over to somebody else for safekeeping. You've actually not even left it on your own live computer where it might get nicked.
0: Don't expect to keep a secret such as a Bitcoin password or ATM pin if you tell it to other people.
2: Yes, that's the flip flip side of hot wallets. And I think it is Benjamin Franklin who is supposed to have said three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. (laughs) If you have a Bitcoin private key, and you have encrypted it, don't go blabbing to other people what the password is, because then they don't even have to fight you to get it. They don't even have to put malware on your computer with a keylogger to try and extract it. So sometimes you keep things to yourself because that is the easiest way to do it. I've
1: reached the point in my life where I'm now fully self-aware enough that when my wife says something like, I need to tell you something, but you can't tell anyone else, I say, just please don't tell me, because I will. (laughs) I will tell. I cannot keep a secret. And it's not that I'm a gossip. I just forget which information is public and which is private. So I'm like, did you hear so-and-so is pregnant? And she's like, I told you not to say that. So don't ever tell me a secret you don't want getting out because I yeah. will accidentally tell it.
0: One last tip. Don't expect to get your money back like Colonial did. I think this is uh, definitely one, the big to one to keep yep. in mind. Uh, it's very unlikely that you're going to get the FBI working on uh, your case and getting that money back.
2: The point is that this was a rather special case, and it looks as though, A, high-profile case, Mm -hmm. B, lots of money involved, C, the FBI kind of got lucky in this case, and they're able to do the recovery. It's not that they wouldn't love to get your $300 back that you paid for ransomware, but... It's unlikely. And just like getting money back from scammers who persuade you to send them a wire transfer, for example, it happens, but it is the exception. It is not the rule.
0: Well, if you want to read that entire article, you know where to go. Com. That article is called, How Could the FBI Recover BTC from Colonial's Ransomware Payment? Question mark.
1: Okay, taking a break. For this week in tech history, this week in 1822, Charles Babbage proposed the Difference Engine in a paper to the Royal Astronomical Society. The small prototype Difference Engine took Babbage three years to build and was powered by a hand crank to crunch numbers. Mm. The British government was interested in the machine, but although the design itself was feasible, metalworking at the time wasn't precise enough to mass produce the machines economically, so the project was scrapped in 1842. Babbage went on to develop the analytical engine, which made the difference engine obsolete anyway.
2: I think it even, was even worse than not being able to mass produce it, don't They couldn't even make one. Can you imagine giant, steam-powered, industrial revolution computers? I wonder what they would have used them for. Just crunching Camping some numbers. Up how much tea was in the Empire, I don't <laughs> doubt. <laughs> that sounds about right.
1: The uh, store where where I bought my computer games when I was a kid was called Babbages. And I never understood cool. why it was called that or who that person was. But now that I'm a little older, and I just get a real wave of nostalgia every time I hear the last name
2: Babbage. So there were some great things that they could have done with it, but as you say, the tiniest bit of error in this gear meant that it was, was exaggerated by the error in the next gear and I think it was took until the late 1990s before the Science Museum in London was able to have one built I think it cost something like 500,000 pounds it's a thing of absolute beauty uh, if you go on YouTube you can find videos of it really is like art in motion when it's doing calculations and as far as I know, they were only able to do, build this mechanical computer because of the computer-controlled precision available thanks to digital computers that have been invented in between. Weird irony, that, isn't it?
1: Speaking of errors, Babbage's was where I bought the Doom demo disc, which cost about five bucks against my parents' wishes. I was about 10 years old, and they found out that I bought the Doom demo, which was very violent at the time. <sighs>
2: Yeah, well, it's, but it was worth it. It hasn't got less violent, Doug. No, it's just everything else has got more violent. Yeah, and apparently, I, I read a story this week that somebody decided that you know, there's a big thing now with it in the tech community. Let's find the smallest, cheapest, yeah. most underpowered device. Run Doom on everything. Port Doom on, and somebody is apparently figured out how to run it on a home automation lighting system from IKEA. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Charles Babbage. It's all because of Charles Babbage. Let's move along to another lightbulb moment. TLS, (laughs) short for Transport Layer Security, is an important part of online cybersecurity these days. So whenever a vulnerability is announced in TLS, the announcement typically makes big headlines. And of course, we around here love ourselves a good B-Wayne, a bug with an impressive name. And this one is called Alpaca.
2: Yes, it is. That's what got me well, the combination of Alpaca, a little cute-looking Alpaca logo, and TLS. And the fact, ooh, they found a problem with TLS, because we've had fantastically named TLS encryption brains before, haven't we? There was Beast, Heartbleed, Logjam, Lucky 13. And apparently, um, Alpaca was originally meant to stand for Application Layer Protocols Allowing Cross-Protocol Attacks and when the researchers found out that it was actually even more than that, they had to re-rename it, and it actually stands for the very catchy, Doug, Application Layer Protocol Confusion Analyzing and Mitigating Cracks in TLS Authentication. Beautiful. Uh, How you get Alpaca out of that, I don't know. But you made me stand up and take notice. I think you leave out half the words. Mm -hmm. So what does it do? Well, the good news is It's very hard to exploit this problem to the point that you pretty much don't need to worry about it. But it is an excellent reminder, just as we were talking about earlier with, you know, if quantum computing does come along and it can crack today's algorithms, we better be nimble enough and ready enough to move when that happens. And maybe we should even move in advance. And so what these guys were doing is they were looking for a way in which you could exploit the fact that many companies don't just use TLS, which we think of for web encryption, padlocking the address bar, for their web server. They use it for loads of other servers increasingly as well, like Secure FTP, IMAP, which is for remotely sending and receiving mail, POP3, which is the old school way of getting mail remotely, and of course SMTP email itself. And so they're figuring, well, I wonder if there are servers out there where the TLS encryption certificate that a company is using, say, on its mail server would work if you happen to use the same certificate on its web server? In other words, if you could somehow just fiddle with their network traffic without actually hacking any servers, is there a way that you could trick someone into thinking they're connecting to a web server where all sorts of security kicks in to prevent things like passwords being recovered Login cookies being retrieved, contents of your shopping cart being exposed, there's all this JavaScript protection. What if you could direct them instead at a company's email server and the email server would present a TLS certificate that even though it was actually only supposed to be used for email, just happened to be valid for the web server as well. Then their thinking was, maybe, just maybe, you could attack the email server, which won't have been secured in the same way against browser-type attacks as a web server. So that's the whole idea of this cross-protocol confusion. And that's really what Alpaca is all about. Sometimes, when we could do that little bit more to lock down our systems cryptographically, we take the easy way out. We go, you know what? I could get an encryption certificate for my mail servers that's only valid for my mail servers and I could get an encryption certificate that's only valid for my web servers and ne'er the twain shall meet and therefore never they'll inadvertently mix each other up or uh, I'll just get one certificate that I can use everywhere and it seems that millions of people sadly do the latter
1: okay so that dovetails nicely into our recommendations
2: Doug four things you can do to prevent this kind of attack where you you go after one server in order to pretend you've accessed a different type of server. So you're able to exploit perhaps bugs in server X that wouldn't exist in server Y, or you get server X to misbehave in a way that server Y wouldn't. The first thing is some kind of application level hardening so that if your email server, for example, suddenly realizes you know what that's not an email program talking to me that's a web browser at the very best something's gone horribly wrong and you can rec- you can tell a browser apart from an email client because they talk a different language if you like and in fact some email servers postfix is a good example do exactly that they just close the connection immediately even though technically the specifications for email say When an error happens, you just report the error back. Even if you can see that the error is somebody trying to be naughty and only after a certain larger number of errors do you close the connection. So that's tip number one. You won't fix the alpaca problem with application level hardening, but there's no reason why a web server would ever need to accept input that was intended for a mail server or vice versa. So why not code that in? It's good good security practice. The second tip is don't have a one-size-fits-all TLS certificate. The third tip and the fourth tip, I'll put them together, is that modern implementations of TLS, modern versions of the TLS protocol, include two what you might call extensions. One's called ALPN, Application Layer Protocol Negotiation. It's exactly what it says. It's that thing that up front says, you know what? I'm a, I'm a browser. I'm making this connection for web related stuff. If my connection ends up on any other kind of server, I'm not interested. So that's a a kind of preventative mechanism. The other side of that coin is a thing called Server Name Indication, SNI. And that's where when you make a request in the first place, you say which named server you intend to connect to. So if in your network, you suddenly find that a web request has arrived at your email server and the person making the request said, you know what, I, own, I really only intend this to work on the web server. You can go, you know what, they said what they wanted. I'm not going to let anyone trick me or them otherwise and drop the connection. So very quickly to, to go through those tips, application level hardening is your friend. If you're a programmer, you can defend against alpaca type attacks by looking for content, looking for a program that's simply talking the wrong language. Don't let TLS certificates overlap. You know, if they're only supposed to work on mail servers, don't make it so they will allow that server to pretend to be a web server as well. There's just no point. And the last tip is use the modern additions to TLS that allow you to be more strict about where you want to connect and what you want to do when you get there. And you will make the world a safer place.
1: Splendid. Let's all make the world a safer place. That is Alpaca, the wacky TLS security vulnerability with a funky name on naked security. Sophos. Oh no.
0: Doug, I don't know how many times I have to tell you, but that is not the URL. Oh no. <laughs> Guys, it is time for the Oh no of the week. You've been waiting patiently. Let's get right into it. 12 Altoids34 rights. <laughs> yes,
1: those things are <laughs> spicy. Yeah,
0: get, they're, they're, get your last Okay, 12 Altoids34 rights. A few years ago, I was a senior tech with a popular personal computer company. As a senior tech, I dealt with a lot of escalation calls. One day, my team lead comes over to my desk. Okay, I'm sending you a call from an irate customer. No shock there. They have replaced his mouse twice and his PC once. He has just finished his third reload and is still messed up. What's the actual issue, I ask? His cursor is jumping all over the screen whenever he uses his mouse. So I take the call. First off, standard apologies. Then we go into DM and look for any possible issue. He's having a hard time negotiating because the cursor keeps jumping around. Current driver versions, reboot into safe mode, same issues. Reboot with mouse out and plug in after, no change. Delete mouse drivers, disconnect mouse and reboot. Plug in mouse and drivers load. Cursor still jumping all over the screen. At this point, I'm at a loss. As I'm trying to think what to do next, I hear a click, click, click from the customer's end.
1: I think he needs a new (laughs) desk.
0: (laughs) Doug, you're getting ahead of us. What's that sound? I ask. Sorry, just tapping my pen on my desk, he replies. I can barely suppress the grin on my face. I feel like laughing out loud. Do you have a glass desk? I ask, although I already know the answer. Yes, he replies with frustration in his voice. Take a piece of printer paper and set your mouse on top of it, I advise. ''Okay, now what?'' he asked. ''I can tell he's losing his patience. Try using your mouse.'' A moment later, ''Oh my god, you fixed my computer. You're a miracle worker.'' (laughs) I explained that he had an optical mouse and the beam was being scattered by the glass desktop. That's why his cursor was jumping around. All he had to do was put it on something not glass for it to work properly, the and oh,
1: those were the days. I remember Microsoft coming out with the optical mouse with the blue laser, which worked on glass <laughs> yes. desks, and that was Supposed their marketing campaign. Was just it'll work on your stupid desk.
0: Now now it works on your glass desk.
1: <laughs> I remember, I was foolish enough to buy a glass desk, and I this was back in the early 2000s, and I was using it. I had an optical mouse that I paid a lot for. And I had to because I was broke and cheap, and I didn't want to replace his mouse. I had to use a magazine the whole time. <laughs> I wouldn't. Even, I didn't even want to buy a mouse pad. I had to use a magazine. I was just like, "What's the perfect magazine I can find? What's a big mag?" You'd like look for these perfect magazines to use as your mouse pad.
2: The other thing that this teaches you is that just in case, particularly for a mouse that relies on batteries, like most of them do, learn your keyboard shortcuts Mm, mm. in an emergency they can save your bacon
0: well i've never been fancy enough to have a glass desk so i wouldn't know this issue
2: i got one right here listen
1: (laughs) but it's it's y2k 21 so the mouse works
0: y2k oh well speaking of um panic (laughs) (laughs) panic (laughs) unreasonable panic if you have an oh no that you want to send our way you can leave us an anonymous comment on nakedsecurity.sophos.com or you can dm us on all the platforms instagram facebook twitter at naked security or you can email us tips at sophos.com or you can hit me up on reddit my username is oh no it's kim that's o-h-n-o it's kim and until next time Stay Stay secure. secure.
1: Stick that in your backlog and groom it. Am I right?